Good morning. Uh, as we start out this morning, um, you know, sometimes we come in and we have heavy things going on in our lives, and I don't even know always as a minister how to help in those situations and how to be a support. Um, but I know that it's always good to pray. And I would like to pray for a couple things this morning as we are getting started, and then I'll jump into our normal lesson and all of that. Uh, the first is a situation. Um, uh, Larry and Lynn Chugan, they are uh, coming to our church regularly. Larry, I don't know if you've had a chance to meet him. He has been blessing this congregation, coming and working with Roy and everything. He was in a, a car accident, and uh, he um, has a lot of extra stress in his life right now. He's got some health issues, and stress causes debilitating headaches for him. And so he's suffering from that right now. And as a congregation, I just want to be in prayer uh, in this situation. So I'm just going to say a quick prayer for their family. Lord, uh, you know all the heavy things that we have to carry. And Lord, I just ask for you to come into Larry and Lynn's life right now with all the stress that's come from this car accident and sorting out details with the insurance company and Lord, take away the stress. Take those headaches away. Protect them and their marriage and uh, their life. Do not let the enemy have a foothold in this situation. Help them in Jesus' name. Amen. And then the second one, uh, another car accident situation. Um, Dina and Millie, his brother, was killed Friday in a car wreck. And he's 80, just turned 81 years old. And as they shared about that with me this morning, they're heartbroken. And I didn't have words to share to comfort them, but we as a body, I want to pray for them and acknowledge them at this time. Lord, uh, you come into this situation, please. You've been there. You are there. You will make a way forward. Holy Spirit, come and help and comfort. Be with Dina. Be with Millie the passing of their brother. This, this is not an expected thing always. And yet, even in the midst of this pain, you are there somehow, Lord. So help us know as a church how to, how to lift them up, how to be with them, support them, and love them. Thank you for serving us, Christ, in so many ways that you come to us even in our pain to try to help us and strengthen us and so, Lord, be a special support to these sisters of ours here in this time, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, a church that's trying to move forward in the work of God to do important work to change lives and be about God's kingdom, bringing God's kingdom to bear in this world, you know, we're going to face resistance. Resistance comes to us in a lot of different ways. It can come to us uh, as a freak car accident. It can come to us uh, in a health issue. It can come to us in broken relationship. And we carry that and we feel the pain of it. But the Lord comes to us 
and asks for our heavy burdens. And in his goodness, he carries those things together with us. And the way he fixes situations reveals his love and his beauty to us. So we are continuing our series this morning, The Hidden Music of John's Gospel. And we're going to get into the 13th chapter. It's a beautiful expression of the love of Jesus and his desire to be in fellowship with us, his desire to serve us and help us. And uh, so we're going to jump into a couple verses in chapter 12 as we get started. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. When Jesus comes into this world, he flips conventional human wisdom upside down, doesn't he? What we think of as the top, Jesus describes oftentimes as the bottom. And there's a lot of these inversion statements in the Gospels, and this is one of them. The person who loves their life will lose it. But the person who lives for Jesus will find a life that is truly life. If you want to oppose God, be proud. But if you want His grace, be humble. Humility is very underrated in our culture. If you want to become rich, then become poor. That's another inversion we find in the gospel. Uh, it talks about when you were weak, then you were strong. Sometimes as a church, all we can offer is our weakness to the Lord and our neediness, but our desire for his goodness to come and reveal Christ among us. And here's another one this morning. If you want to save your life, You will lose it. And these inversions that we read about in Scripture, they reveal something about what is truly of value, true riches, what is truly important. Because a lot of times the things that we think are really important, it ends up just being empty and not having value. These inversion statements and Jesus' teaching, it shows us what true strength looks like. It shows us the power of service and humility, the power of self-sacrificial love. You see, just as Jesus aroused tremendous opposition, we can expect pushback in our lives as well. We can expect pushback when we practice the inverted wisdom of God, because it reveals worldly wisdom for what it is. A lot of times it's foolishness, and it's a threat to all the ways that we as a culture keep score, and all the ways that we as a culture express power 
and try to hold on to that power and manage people in situations. The inverted wisdom of Jesus flips all of these systems on their ear. And so last week we talked about shame and how shame is endemic in our institutions, in our communities. It bothers us as individuals. It bothers us as a church. Shame will push back against things that it sees as a threat. And there's a lot of correlation between shame and how it expresses itself in fear, the fears that we have in our life. Fear of having nothing, fear of having to control a situation, the fear of change and changing. So just to recap briefly, why is shame so powerful in our lives? It exists in all our structures we are, where we are nurtured, individually, but we find it at work in our family, in our family of origin. Shame works at the church at times, our education institutions. Shame is so powerful because it's not something that only affects a single person. As a, it's, it's, it's in our social systems. Like we see it in John's Gospel where there's pushback at Jesus doing beautiful and amazing things. Why is that? Why can't people accept the beauty of a miracle of a healing of a paralytic or a blind man or Lazarus being resurrected from the dead? It's because shame is in that system and there's fear of change and what's this, what it means by Jesus doing these things. And then finishing John chapter 12, we see a couple other instances where shame is at work. Verse 37 says, even after Jesus had done these miraculous signs in their presence, no one denies the miracles even. They've witnessed it all. They still would not believe in him. They still would not believe that Jesus is who he says he was, who he claimed to be. It's because they're part of a system that is too threatened. People who are entrenched in systems of shame and fear, the more amazing Jesus becomes, the more threatening he becomes. And it goes on in verse 42 and following says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, they believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Praise from men more than praise from God. And so even while the Pharisees reject Jesus and want to put him to death, still others, they they believe in him. And the amazing things that they have seen, faith begins to grow. And yet we see shame and fear at work because they will not stand up and be counted as associated with Jesus in any way. Because they're afraid of what could possibly happen to them. The idea of even the possibility of being kicked out of the synagogue. What will people say? 
What would people do if they knew if they knew I liked Jesus? That idea of their exclusion is so shameful that they will not speak up or out for Jesus, even though they know justice is being perverted. And it's a huge problem for us as well. And it's a huge problem even in the church where we are constantly hungry for and craving praise from people. And when we don't get that praise, we feel insecure, we feel adrift, we feel anxious. And when the kudos of people, they fail. And they will, because praise from people, praise that comes from man, is fickle. And our attention spans are short. I could preach an awesome sermon, and I'm only as good as my next performance. And when the next performance isn't that great, everything is all forgotten. Praise is short-lived from people. And when we don't get it, we feel lost. So how do we take a stand against shame in our lives? Only as we learn to listen and accept the praise of God will we be able to stand against ridicule, apathy, disdain, indifference, and shame that's heaped on us by other people. What Jesus is offering us is a firm place to stand. Listening to the praise of God isn't always easy for us because even when we want to hear it, even when we do hear the words, you are my beloved, do you have a heart that can accept the, that, those words? When Jesus says you are beautiful, does your heart accept that you are beautiful? Only as we learn to listen and accept the praise of God will we be able to confront the broken structures of our world from a place of true freedom. What I mean by that is when I have weaned myself from the need to be everything to every person that comes into my life or whatnot, and I look for the praise that only God can give, suddenly I'm free to do those things that are pleasing and beautiful to Him. Even when other people say, you're this or you're that, or who do you think you are? The praise of God gives us a place to stand so that we can react differently to the situations that life throws at us. We get to stand in a place of freedom. I talked about uh, last week a little bit too, the healing power of faith communities. If we are healthy and we, we learn to get deeper into each other's lives. Disciples learn from Jesus how to turn attention away from judgment and blame into possibility. We learn how to reframe the circumstances that God puts, our, puts before us. We get, a, we get a choice how we're going to interpret the things, that challenges that come our way. You know that, right? With shame endemic in many systems in our culture, it's very hard for an individual or even you as a family to break out of that and do something really, truly amazing. But as a community, 
of people being formed in the image of Christ and being filled with His Holy Spirit. The possibilities of what we can become, it's captured my imagination. And we keep praying, Your kingdom come. That kingdom is now. It's available to us. We have to just grab onto it and walk right in. We learn how to trust each other, to be vulnerable with each other. Sometimes fighting against the entrenched fear and shame in our lives, it requires us to put new habits in place. Scripture reading, prayer, going to a whole different and deeper level with those in our lives. And then shame does not die easily. Our fears don't go away. We don't get better just because we know that this is the way we work or whatnot. It takes time for that knowledge to get into the heart. And that heart, it spreads into your soul and then it's in your bones that you know the Lord has got this and He's got me. And now in John chapter 13, Jesus once again turns conventional wisdom upside down. The creator and sustainer of the universe becomes the servant of those who were underneath him, thus breaking the power of shame through full, uh, sh- f- showing the full extent of his love for humanity and his love for his, his disciples. Keep in mind as well that in the hidden music of John, this is taking place in the context of the Last Supper. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is an interpretive lens of sorts. It's a key to understanding Jesus' farewell narratives, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. That beautiful prayers in John chapter 17. Some of the richest verses in all of Scripture. This is an interpretive key right there. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to... Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knows that. But what does he do? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The task of washing feet in ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a task reserved. Some rabbis even insisted that Jewish slaves should be exempt from this practice. Let the Gentile slaves do that job. Sometimes it was delegated to women or children or students' pupils. And then taking off his outer clothing and wrapping a towel around his waist, waist, Jesus adopts the dress of a menial slave and servant. 
He's no longer recognizable as a rabbi or a teacher. But as the lowest of slaves in the household, doing the dirtiest of jobs. The kind of dress that's looked down on by both Jews and Gentiles. And in this act of humble service, Jesus once again reverses human wisdom and what we think of as normal. Normal roles for us to be involved in. Jesus, the freest human who ever walked the face of the earth. I thought was thinking about that the other day. Jesus, who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus, who knew he was going to die. The freest human to ever walk the face of the earth. And how can I say that? He was never tainted by personal sin. He never gave in to false pride. He never felt the need to dominate other people, to manipulate and control people. He was free from anxiety. He was free from fear because he had confidence in God the Father. Perfect confidence and trust in God. He was free from greed. He was free from a scarcity mentality because he knew that the Father would provide everything he needed. Jesus knows that he is from God and that he is returning to God. He is free. And how does the Son of God choose to use his freedom? Think about that. How does he choose to use his freedom? See, no one expected this act from Jesus. He is a rabbi washing his disciples' feet, his students' feet, his lowly students. But the hidden reality of John is even greater than this. Our God, who washes the feet of humanity, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who touches us in our dirtiest parts, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Jesus had just turned everything upside down once again, and Peter, like the other disciples, I'm sure, are still trying to figure out the implications of what all of this means. So if this is what my rabbi does, if my teacher does this, what does that mean about me and my position? And suddenly that's threatened. I can't help but tie some of Jesus' teaching to the Last Supper narrative from Luke's account. It says these words in the 22nd chapter. The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves.
among us as one who serves. Well, Peter, he's an amazing guy to me in so many ways. Where all the other disciples are speechless, Peter finds words. He finds enough words that he is constantly able to put his foot in his mouth. Peter always has that many words, at least. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. Peter doesn't want to accept this situation, does he? But unless we accept the work of Jesus to take away our sin and our filth and all of our darkness, our condition remains unchanged, doesn't it? We are still estranged from God until we accept the saving work of Jesus Christ. So now Peter, he's so can't accept the situation. He's so upset by it that he goes on and is like, find Jesus. If you're going to be that way about that about this, I want the deluxe car wash. I want the deluxe treatment. Take care of all of this. And Jesus' response is interesting, and I wonder how Peter understood it in the moment. But when I hear bath, I think baptism in Scripture, something that is done once, and then even though we have sin in our lives that comes after baptism, we're not rebaptized with every transgression, are we? No, we confess and we repent. We ask for God's forgiveness and we move on past our sin into victorious living. And just like Peter, though, many of us have a hard time. We have such a hard time with this. Letting Jesus come to us and wash our feet. Because each and every one of us, we have stinky feet issues in our lives, don't we? You have stinky feet issues in your lives. You can nod your head if you want. I know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us have our own stinky feet issues. Things that are dirty. Things that we are ashamed of. And when Jesus, he comes to us through our circumstances of life or through other people, and when he offers to wash our dirty parts, there's resistance that wells up in us. We fight against that. First off, it's hard for some of us to even admit that we have dirty parts that Jesus needs to wash. But for those of us who've learned how to humble ourselves and let Jesus serve, let Him touch you. Let Him wash you. The humility of Jesus will change your heart toward Him. And you'll love, your love for Jesus, it'll grow. So many of us carry a broken self-image where we felt unloved or not wanted. You feel like you're a disappointment to those around you. People around you have abused you or made you feel somehow worthless. People you loved who are not around anymore because they, you wonder, is, that, is it something I did? And Jesus comes to you to touch you, to serve you, to wash you, to heal you. 
And while your love for Jesus begins to grow, your soul begins to mend and you begin to understand something of your own beauty and your tremendous value in the eyes of God. It's the love of Jesus when he comes to us as a servant that reveals how beautiful and valuable we are. When Jesus has the freedom as the creator and sustainer of all things, knowing he's going back to the Father to do anything that he wants, this is what he chooses. Stinky feet. And it reveals something of our worth as those who are created in the image of God. That somehow the glory of God resides in us. Sometimes for a lot of us, it's buried deep in there. We don't even believe it ourselves. But Jesus sees it. And He sees it as valuable. And your life is beautiful to Jesus Christ. Let me say a quick word about uh, this situation of washing feet because there are echoes of other scriptures that come into these, this act of service. Oh, let me back up. I skipped ahead here. You are not clean, though everyone, not, not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not every one of you are clean. Uh, I think John throws this in there because you think about this situation going on at the Last Supper, what is happening? Jesus, knowing that Judas is going to betray him, is among those who he washes their feet. Jesus included Judas to the very end with love and full inclusion. But even as the disciples, they grew in their faith, something was broken in Judas that even though he witnessed the same miracles, shared the same time and life together with Jesus, instead of the growth in faith, he grew to hate Jesus, to hate him. And so what was he thinking as Jesus washed his feet? Let me say a quick word about how, um, how this, there's echoes of this text in other scriptures as well. Mary's extravagant act of pure love and devotion, we just read about that, when she anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and wiped the feet with her hair, is being echoed in Jesus' actions. Not only does Jesus receive our love, he gives love from a place of great humility our dirtiest places. He wants to come into that and take care of that for us. The humility of Jesus' action washing the disciples' feet anticipates the humility that is, will be expressed on the cross. The washing of the disciples here echoes our full commitment to Jesus when we are baptized. Baptism is a sign of full surrender of ourselves to fully belong to Jesus. He talks about being cleansed. We are cleansed. By him. So there's these little echoes that all, like I said, this, this act of service, this act of love, it's an interpretive lens to understand bigger pictures of things going on in the hidden music of John's gospel. 
when he had finished washing their feet. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I think it takes the disciples some time to figure out the full implications of Jesus' words and Jesus' actions because we all have in our heads the way that real power works. It's like a pyramid with those who are the, the smart, the educated, the wealthy, the beautiful, they're on top. And then the rest of us are somewhere down there. No one's working hard to be a friend of those who are on the bottom. Everyone's working hard to be a friend or known or recognized in some way from those who are at the top of the pyramid, however we, however we divide that up. But when Jesus calls us to wash one another's feet, he's calling us to love, to serve, and to forgive each other. And that needs to be an activity that's normal in this church. Where we accept Jesus washing our feet and follow his examples and we wash other people's feet and we become Jesus Christ in their life. See, Jesus, he says, you call me Lord and teacher and rightly so, for that is what I am. He maintains his authority and his position. He does not forfeit that. He is the Son of God. But by washing his disciples' feet, Jesus does, he doesn't diminish his authority, but he reveals a new way of exercising authority. A new way to be servant leaders. A way that comes through humility and acts of service and love. Jesus wants to bridge the gap that so often exists by those in leadership and those who are under their leadership. And he wants us, he wants to bring us to a place where we can have a true commonality, a communion of hearts. And so all of this, I think, leads us to a crucial question that we need to ask. Whose feet do you need to be washing? You have to answer this. How are you honoring your parents? How do you need to be serving your spouse? How is the Lord inviting you to wash the feet of your children so that they know their true value in the Lord? So that they feel secure in your home? That they know that they're beautiful? How are you washing feet in this church? How are you serving this body? What about your coworkers, your bosses, employees, siblings, friends, teachers, students, acquaintances, etc.? The implications of Jesus' invitation to be a servant to those around you, it goes the breadth of human relationships, doesn't it? It feels overwhelming sometimes. So just think of one. I'm just going to pause for a second. Think. Who is there in my life, in my circle of acquaintances or anything, that maybe I need to be washing their feet? 
to tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessed if you do them. Notice where the blessing comes in. The text doesn't say you will be blessed for knowing these things. Knowing about these things. Rather, knowledge is to lead to action. And it's in acting. The doing. That's where the blessing comes in. That's up to you. Your preacher doesn't make you do that. Other people can't make you do that. But Jesus Christ is inviting you to do that. No servant is greater than their master. This is what your master has done for you. This is what he continues to do for you. When we take up the mantle of humble service, humble service to others for the love of Christ, that's when we discover just how dynamic and rich and bountiful the blessings of God are. And when we enter into people's dirty feet issues, we begin to accept something of our own poverty, our own stinky feet, our own needs our own weaknesses. And as we learn how to become vulnerable to each other and to the Lord and accept the love of Jesus as he comes to me again and again and again with my own dirty feet issues to help me. Love grows in my heart. And not only does love grow in my heart for Jesus as I act in service toward other people, I begin to discover something of my own beauty and dignity and the beauty and dignity of the image of Christ and the image of God alive in you. And that Holy Spirit at work among us shows us the acts of beauty that we can be doing and calls us to us and we learn obedience in those settings. It's just a beautiful love that grows among us. So one last story and we'll be done this morning. So this is going back a long way uh, to a guy named Lawrence. I think he's the guy there with the little like shiny uh, thing with the, what kind of haircut style is that? I, I don't know. So this is like a medieval rendition of events that happened uh, in the early church in Rome. And so that's a deacon of the church, a guy named Lawrence. Yeah, that's, that's a haircut that looks like put a big soup bowl on the head and just trimmed around the edges. That's what it looks like to me. Well, this is going back to the third century. Lawrence was an early deacon in the church of Rome and was in charge of the church's treasury. That was what his deaconship involved, that he was, he was supposed to take care of the treasury for the church. Well, the Roman authorities who were in power, they had established a norm according to which all Christians who had been denounced, that they were to be executed immediately and all their goods confiscated and put into the imperial treasury. So at the beginning of August in 258, the emperor 
Valerian issued an edict that all bishops, priests, and deacons should be immediately put to death when they are discovered. Well, they caught one bishop named Sixtus II, who was captured on August 6, and in two, August 6 of the year 258, and was executed immediately. Well, after the death of Sixtus, the prefect of Rome demanded that Lawrence turn over the riches of the church to be put into the imperial treasury. So Lawrence said, give me three days to gather this wealth together. And so the Roman authorities granted him three days. Three days to go get all the wealth of the church. And after three days, Lawrence came back. He came back and he was stood in front of the Roman authorities and he was accompanied by a large group of people Poor people, the lame, blind, women, children, foreigners, all that he could find in the city of Rome who were willing to come. And there he stood in front of the Roman prefect and said, Here, here are the riches of the church. It's in humble service to each other and to the Lord that we will discover the true riches of his church and the community that he desires for us, his kingdom come among us. Well, for his actions, of course, Lawrence was burned alive and became a martyr for the faith. But he also got to be a voice that testifies together with Jesus Christ about what is truly valuable. And whether we see it or not, in any situation you are in, it's the person right beside you or the person right in front of you. That is the treasure of our Lord. So I don't know what your needs are this morning. Uh, We always offer an invitation here put on Christ and baptism. The last week was a beautiful thing. Thank you for those who came forward. And we got to pray together just for the Lord to do a work here in this church and in this place. And in His, his strength will be our victory. Uh, and it was a beautiful thing. But if you need to put on the Lord in baptism or you need the prayers of this congregation in some special way, you have an opportunity uh, to come forward and talk to me as we stand and sing together.